Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen, and I'm pleased to announce that she's back, fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, spullen at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. You are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude. Anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice. Would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hat smiley face. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to The China Shop. I am your host, Kyle, and joining me for today's episode is the dynamic and daring Drew Spaventa. Uh, Drew's the founder and CEO of Spaventa Group, a leading alternative investment company who has also recently accepted a position on the Forbes Finance Council. If you'd like to learn more about today's guests, you can check out tsginvest.com or you can follow them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'll have those links in the episode descriptions. And then lastly, uh, be sure to reach out with your suggestions, corrections, or questions for future guests. You can do that via email at twobulls at financialinstitute.com or you can join our free Discord server where a bunch of amazing people gather to share our struggles and lessons learned with other like-minded market aficionados. Well, now that we got all the promotion stuff out of the way, let's get to know today's guest. Drew, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Kyle. Uh, glad to be here. And I do have to say, uh, there was a podcast I was on a few months ago, mm -hmm. and their introduction is an introduction I never experienced before. But you just blew them out of the water. So oh. what I got to do is every time I'm introduced some way, somehow, I got to bring on Kyle to say, here's Drew Spaventa, dynamic guy. And again, uh, great introduction. I, I couldn't have done it better myself. I appreciate well, thank it. You. It's the secret of alliteration. It makes everything better. Yes, that's 100% true. So this this recording almost didn't come together. Uh, um, you had to cancel last time, the last minute, because of a house fire. And we've been... We've been letting everybody know who listens that uh, if Drew can call us the day of a house fire and let us know that he's not going to make the recordings and there's no excuse for a no call, no show. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it was that that was a crazy weekend in itself. And the the week started. So I'm, I'm a well, you'll know how it started as soon as I say this, but I'm, I'm a customer of Signature Bank. Okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I had a few deals with a portfolio companies that were customers of SVB. So my week literally started on a Sunday night with the breaking news that Signature Bank was closing down. So now all of a sudden at 7.30 o'clock at night on a Sunday, I'm speaking with my private bankers and my organ a few leaders of my organization, figuring out what exactly is going on. So there was a good, nice amount of time where I said, oh, wow, we have quite a bit of money with Signature and most of our funds are attached to Signature. So what the hell is going to go happen there? Ooh. And then literally three days later, I think it was that Wednesday or that Thursday, 
where I had it scheduled. And, and mind you, those few days were just pure insanity, right? I bet. Yeah, the, the second and third largest bank failures in U.S. history occur within, you know, uh, a, a few days of each other. Right. So it leads from the debacle at Signature Bank, where leading into that Wednesday, or I believe it was actually a Thursday, where we were scheduled to have our, our podcast and our first really good conversation. And I all of a sudden, I get a call at a quarter to seven in the morning by the previous homeowner that I just purchased the house from. And, oh. you know, wake up, hello. And she said, yeah, Drew, I think your house is on fire. I said, excuse me, oh, you no. think my house is on fire? Okay. So the the my actual neighbor finally got a hold of me about five minutes later and says, yeah, Drew, your house is on fire. So number one, I, I went there, my fiance wow. is, uh, you know, asking me what's going on. And I said, well, listen, I, uh, the, the previous homeowner called me and she said, I think your house is on fire. So the house must be on fire. Let me go there and check it out. Now, mind you, when somebody calls you and they say, I think your house is on fire. What are you thinking on, about? Yeah. Yeah. Here I'm picturing <laughs> not a blazing, you know, the place's torch. Like it looks like somebody shot it with a flamethrower, right? Right. I'm thinking that, all right, maybe in my mind, I'm already starting to assess maybe there's 20, 30, 40 grand worth of damage. Maybe there's a par- corner in it that's smoking and she thinks it might be on fire. Maybe it's something else. Right. I don't know. So let me go there. Uh, Kyle, I pull into my development. Number one, I look in the sky and you see black puff of smoke. Holy crap. Encapsulating the sky, right? I pull into the development. All of a sudden, you see one fire truck from one fire district, another fire truck from a separate fire district, and then another one from another fire district. So I had three fire districts, separate uh, vehicles from those um, districts. So now I'm saying to myself, you think my house is on fire? <laughs> you, you, you know what I mean? So so now I pull down the block and I park on the side. I get out of my car and I start running to, to where my house is. And then, boom, there you go. And I'm thinking to myself, holy crap, my house is on fire. And literally, it's it's about 4,500 square feet. Just bought it in January. Had to remodel it and everything. Oh. And I was literally a week away from moving in. And literally 40% of it got torched. Now, obviously, the the... The, the police officers that were there probably thought I was a suspect because it didn't really phase me at the time because, you know, I'm a guy of action. All of a sudden, I'm staring at my house in flames. My fiance finally shows up. She's crying. So I'm, I'm you know, doing my best to console right. her. But at the same point, point uh, I have my organization worried about the banking situation. We have clients and limited partners worried about the banking situation. Everybody's looking at me because it's, you know, I'm the leader of the organization for some sort of direction. So I'm literally on the phone and everybody's looking at me, all the professionals, the police officers, the firemen saying, dude, what's like, wrong with this guy? <laughs> do you not really? Yeah. Is, is this guy in shock or what's going on? And I wound up, you know, getting pissed off. And I said, listen, guys, I understand that this is happening to me, but there's a reason why you have insurance. Right. There's all the things that, uh, that you could do to rectify this. At this point, this is just a major inconvenience for me. There's nobody inside. Nobody got hurt. I've heard worse stories of worse things happening. This is all material BS. Mm-hmm. My most, my high priority right now is ensuring that our clients and our P- LPs, that there isn't a systemic banking situation going on and ensuring my organization that our finances are fine and that we'll be able to open our doors tomorrow. So, and, and then on top of that, once I'm done speaking with a whole bunch of people in my organization, I'm already on the phone with several different types of contractors saying, hey, listen, 
within the next month or so, I'm going to need you to bring in here. Um, I need an estimate for framing. I need an estimate for this because this is probably what's going to go down. So, so right. again, instead of sitting there, you know, walloping and saying, holy, I'm, I'm looking for the silver lining and I'm focused on other things. So, yeah, I think it's one of those crazy things. You hit the nail on the head when you said that nobody was hurt, right? Your family, you hadn't moved in yet. And that's probably about the best case scenario for a situation like that to happen where nobody's there at least. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, you hear these stories about family families, you know, getting killed in a right. fire in the middle of the night, and that didn't happen to us. So, so again, you know, luckily, and that's another thing that I said to her. I said, "Listen, fifteen years ago, coming from nothing the way I was, it was a financial hardship for me to blow out my tire. Mm -hmm. It was a financial hardship because I I remember having to deposit." a dollar in the bank account because I overdrew it by a quarter. Right. I said, I'm lucky enough that after, you know, 15, 20 years of hard work, I'm finally <laughs> achieved the position where I'm financially successful. So this isn't really a financial hit to me. It's more of an inconvenience. And because of that, I live my life a certain way where it's really, really, there has to be something major, major to really neck me out. And if anything ever does neck me out, Kyle, it'll never last more than a day. Mm -hmm. And I have made a commitment to myself many, many years ago to, to never let, you know, anything lay me out that way. I'm going to make a note because I want to revisit that. Um, I do want to talk more a little bit about the, uh, the SVB uh, collapse. I didn't realize that you were um, one of the affected parties. Well, I guess that makes sense though, because it says in your bio that you're, you're big into venture capitalism. And I think that's, from what I was reading, it sounded like the venture capitalists were the ones who been getting the blame for SVB's, um, uh, bank run. Yeah, I, I, I disagree with that. And, and mind you, I, I, let me be, be clear. I, I was in the middle of a uh, transaction mm -hmm. with one of the parties that had exposure to SVB. So I did not have ex, uh, direct exposure okay, myself. Okay, okay. So I had, I had a deal pretty much fall through the week prior to Signature Bank uh, going under mm -hmm. because of the SVB situation. I was personally a, a client of Signature Bank, and which is now Flagstar. Okay. And I continue to be a client of them, by the way, gotcha. uh, because they did rectify and everything like that. So uh, as far as to your point of, and yes, uh, industry-wide, a lot of people are saying that venture it's the venture capitalists' fault for the bank run and the failure of SVB. And I, I completely disagree. You know, right. SVB five years ago, 10 years ago was the, the saint of Silicon Valley, the saint of the VC uh, space. Mm -hmm. And I continue to say that all these companies, DoorDash, Airbnb, all these multi-billion dollar companies that the average consumer now relies upon and have become household names up there with your Coca-Colas and your Home Depots and your Targets and your Walmarts all started by doing business with SBB. SBB loaned them the capital they need, right. or should I say loaned the, to the VCs. The VCs loaned it to the uh, the companies and the companies deposit their cash with SBB. So they were definitely a, a pro startup, pro innovation bank. Mm -hmm. The issue that transpired is a combination. So again, I don't think the venture capitalists, maybe by some of them tweeting and announcing a few things and having the proliferation of social media uh, enhance that bank run, mm -hmm. maybe some VCs could be a culprit of that, uh, be, especially we haven't seen a bank run to that that uh, magnitude, uh, which I think has a lot to do with social media, with them tweeting and everything. So I want to put the 100% of the blame on VCs, but I can't say that they also didn't put gasoline to the fire. It, it sounds like they're just the first people who acted. They were the ones that probably had their risk alarms going off the quickest exactly. and saying, you know what, I'm going to get the hell out of here. 
Exactly. Exactly. So to answer your question of what I think happened, I think it's just a combination of mismanagement by SVB in addition to the Fed, you know, shocking the market by, you know, their their 25 and 50 basis point uh, rate increases every single quarter when that should have been done, you know, maybe two years ago. Now, SVB could have been a little bit, you know, smarter with their 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 money and they should have anticipated that, hey, one day these bonds might have to be sold at a discount because if they keep on raising interest rates, what do you think the hell is going to happen to the value of this <laughs> right. bond? But so, so I think it's it's not really a one size fits all situation. I think it's a combination of mismanagement by SVB in addition to you know Fed kind of throwing that gasoline on that fire. Well, I mean, the stuff I was reading is probably just somebody trying to save their job. <laughs> I know it wasn't our fault; it was this guy. Yeah, there's always <laughs> there's always an agenda, right? Right. All right, Drew, uh, tell me a little bit about how you got into investing. You kind of touched on uh, some struggles uh, early on in your life. Um, like, have you always been invested in the markets or, no. or in, in that side of things? Or did you, you make the leap later? Yeah, I made the leap later. I mean, I'm going to be 37 in July, um, July 2nd to be exact. I, say, I share the same birthday with Tom Cruise. So I'm very proud of that. I'm a big Tom Cruise fan. <laughs> I think he's the best actor, you know, you know, uh, crazy guy, does things that I would never do, but good for him. Right. Uh, that being said, I've been investing since my early 20s. So I haven't been investing all my life. I know that there's been, which is a good thing, this proliferation of, uh, teenagers starting to invest, whether it's stocks on Robinhood or buying crypto through a, a digital exchange. So I was not one of these individuals that started investing at a very early age. And I'm talking about strictly about the stock market, right? Right. Yeah. Investing, not trading. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I would say the first investment I ever made was in myself by launching my own business. And that was a DJ business in my late teens, early 20s. So no shit. By, by saying that, you know, that's that's the first investment I made. Then after that, that's when I started trading stocks. And I thought I was, you know, king, you know what, because I was making money. And then I got slapped in the face when, you know, don't don't. There's an age old saying where it says, you know, don't misconstrue brains with a bull market. And mm -hmm. that was a hard lesson for me. And then after that, I actually decided, you know what, um, it was my dream to always own several businesses. And learn business inside and out, but I, I felt that I was thinking too small by just focusing on a DJ company. You know, how scalable is that? You know, to a certain extent it could be, but I wanted bigger and better and had a larger vision. Uh, became a stockbroker from there, started, uh, you know, I held various roles, including equities trader, investment advisor, fund manager, launched my first uh, VC secondaries firm, Quantum Global Partners, a few years back with a business partner. Um, although the firm was rocking and rolling and the partnership, it didn't work out. And then from there, I decided to launch the firm that bears my name, the Spaventa Group, where we are one of those leading investment companies. And aside from our asset management division, which uh, acts as a, G as a GP to several private investment funds, uh, we also have a financial planning arm and insurance arm. So we're really all encompassing when it comes to our financial services. Interesting. I was browsing through the the website while preparing for this interview, kind of looking through some of the the contents you guys have on there. Uh, I was I was kind of shocked to see uh, investing in psilocybin article on your website. Yeah, I, not, I know. It's just, not something you see very often. I know. I know. We're actually in the process of just uh, beefing up our, our website. I hired a new marketing officer. I was not a fan of the old one. I felt like it needed just a little few tweaks here and there. So we actually have a full-blown website revamp either tomorrow or next week. Uh, as far as psilocybin, it's something that we have not invested in yet. Mm -hmm. 
but uh, one of my fund administrators and myself are actually going to a uh, conference, a networking event rather next week uh, that's focused exclusively on uh, the psychedelic industry. So are you typically looking for alternative type investments or do you guys do uh, more traditional type uh, plays as well? Yeah, well, that on our on our financial planning side, we do a lot of mm-hmm. traditional investments on our asset management side, which is the division, uh, which is a separate entity in itself, exclusively owned by TSG. Uh, that's where we focus exclusively on alternative investments, uh, accredited investors, qualified purchasers. Uh, many of our funds focused on VC secondaries. We're branching into real estate uh, by the end of the year. I'm already working on a few deals, but it has to be right. Uh, plus, we like to be innovative. And now we're looking at uh, more innovative early stage opportunities, You know, one of which is the psychedelic industry. So yeah, to answer your question, you know, our asset management arm is focused exclusively on alternatives. Well, can you tell me what you're seeing and like what makes you look at that industry as something that like, what, how does that catch your eye? What What are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, several years ago, uh, you know, it's you have all these different factions, right? You have in finance, you'll have investment bankers, you'll have stockbrokers, you'll have bond traders, uh, options traders, commodities brokers. And I'm kind of sitting there and I'm thinking, well, why isolate yourself as a professional to one asset class? Right. Right. Why don't you create something that you're highly, not only is your, your book of business and client base highly diversified, but you're able to offer several things, become an authority figure in several different assets to your clients as well. And I, I came to the realization that for the better part of a century, the three major asset classes, excluding you know cash and money market instruments, but the three major asset classes that investors allocated their capital to is stocks bonds and real estate. And I'm sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, there, there's got to be other assets you could allocate your capital to get it returned. Well, there, there are. For the last 30, 40 years, you've had multi-billion dollar private equity firms um, allocating it to private equity and, and alternatives like art. You know, art, art's been a huge one. Mm-hmm. But all those opportunities have been reserved for predominantly institutional investors and very high, ultra high net worth individuals, which means net worths uh, above $30 million. So you haven't really seen democratization of that alternative investing to an average accredited investor. Uh, to the average individual that's not worth over a million dollars, that's a conversation in and itself because it's it's even harder because just because, you know, it, yep. because of the risk and everything like that, I'm sure you know, and you obviously agreed, so you do know, but... <laughs> it's actually one of the questions I had on yeah. here for you. <laughs> but but that's that's the whole thing, you know, there's, there's other ways to make money and grow your wealth aside from those traditional assets, Kyle, and the major firms are also starting to realize that as there is talk of, is the 60-40 portfolio even valid anymore? And I'd even go as far as say, it never really was. Maybe 100 years ago, but if you isolate yourself to two assets, um, you're doing a disservice to your clients. And as an investor, in my opinion, you're doing a disservice to yourself. I mean, I've seen people uh, question the idea of diversification, even. Like, Instead of trying to invest in the entire market, you pick a basket of stocks and sectors that you think are, you know, prepared for long-term growth, like talking about like, you know, 10-year horizons. And that's how, right? Uh, like the successful people that we've been talking to, it seems like their, their thought process has been shifting towards that. Yeah. And, th- and that's the thing, you know, when it comes to 
depends on where you are financially. You know, the the decision mm-hmm. that a seven year old individual is going to make is not the same as, as the decision that a twenty five or thirty year old is going to make, right? So, right. in my opinion, the the best way to attack it, and actually, I was speaking on another podcast earlier this week, and I said the same thing: is number one, you invest in yourself by increasing cash flow to yourself, whether it's by starting a side hustle or furthering your education to increase your salary, furthering some sort of skill to increase your salary. Second thing is you make sure that you have uh, emergency cash reserves. Uh, Mm -hmm. The amount of those cash reserves and the length of time depends on your profession. Anybody in sales who's fully commissioned probably should have more because your your salary, your cash flow to yourself is going to be a little bit more volatile than the state worker whose job's pretty much guaranteed, right? Yeah. After those reserves, invest exclusively in your retirement and always know what you're investing in. If you're investing in your retirement, maybe you could take a little bit of risk if you're 25, 30. But for the most part, even myself, and I'm extremely risk tolerant, mm-hmm. uh, be ultra conservative with your retirement. Why? Because it's your retirement. Right. Right. And then whatever cash flow you have left over after feeding your lifestyle, whether it's a extravagant lifestyle or a pretty moderate style, lifestyle or low key lifestyle, the rest of it, invest. That's the discussion to have mm-hmm. with what's left after you built up your reserves, after you know that your, your compensate, your cash flows to yourself is okay. And after you're consistently contributing to your retirement in a conservative way, the cash that's left over, then what do you do with it? That's the question. Like what you said about the side hustles too, like increasing your own cash flow. Because there's so many people that I talk to that don't invest in themselves or their retirement because they just you know can't make ends meet. They've gotten themselves in a situation where they've either got spiraling debt that's going out of control or they just they just can't keep up with everything, you know? Yeah. And, and that's, that's the thing, you know, I feel that too many people put themselves in debt and there's always this conversation, you know, a gentleman asked me that, that hosted the podcast earlier this week. And he said, what would you, what advice, investing advice would you give somebody that's living to paycheck to paycheck? And I said, uh, <laughs> uh, increase your salary, man. Yeah, You know, that's, that's not, it's not something that somebody wants to hear, but if you're living paycheck to paycheck and the unfortunate thing, Kyle is, there's influencers out there and there's grifters out there that'll say, no, invest in this, invest in this. And then mm-hmm. you have people that are so caught in the rat race and living paycheck to paycheck, like you just said, that all of a sudden they're going to say, well, listen, if I could just come up with 500 bucks, a thousand bucks, a couple of grand and put it into this one crypto or this one stock <laughs> or this one options play, right? Yeah. Maybe just maybe that two grand can turn into 20 or a hundred and even if you picture that, and even in the event that does come to fruition, if you're two grand, your five hundred dollars, whatever it is, and all of a sudden, a small investment turns into twenty five grand, a mm-hmm. hundred grand, a million dollars, you're still not showing that you're financially savvy, that you're going to be able to live off that money and uh, in an educated manner be able to invest that. So it's going to sow you rewards for years and years and years. And you know how I know I'm right with that is think about how many people win the lotto. They win seven, eight, nine figures, and within a certain amount of time, they go bankrupt. We literally just talked about this in a recording we did last week uh, about uh, or with Rich Friesen, uh, trading psychology and getting in the right mindset. And that's mm-hmm. exactly it. If you're not prepared for success, then how do you ever expect to experience it? Yeah. And, and the whole thing is, I, I think that, and I've come to realize too, you know, speaking because I have my own Long Island radio show now. And- it's, it's not easy just speaking off the cusp. It's definitely easier. And I mentioned this yesterday in mm-hmm. my, my episode that airs tonight. It's easier when 
a guy like you, a guy like me are speaking, we're having a conversation, maybe 25 minutes already went. And it's completely different if I'm forced to speak by myself. Oh, yes. <laughs> and just rant and rant and rant. And I'm looking at my marketing officer, Dana, and I said, Jesus, I'm just talking in circles here, right? <laughs> but but the, 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 the fact of the matter, the reason why I bring that up is I've come to realize that you speak to all these people that are brilliant on paper, and I'm not trying to be insulting, but there's a lot of people that have way too much credit. Mm-hmm. And I think the best thing, the best advice that you could give somebody when it comes to investing or whatever it is, is to focus on what you can control. And the two most important things are the things that I'm blessed that I've had since I was a kid, and that's patience and discipline, especially when it comes to investing. If you have discipline and you have patience when it comes to making your money work for you, you're... I would I don't know the statistic, but I would have to gather that your head and shoulders better than ninety five percent of what's out there. I would agree with that statement. Uh, it took me way too long to learn the patience uh, and discipline um, in my journey. Uh, it's been going on about three years of trying to learn how to actively trade, and I think that's been one of the biggest keys is knowing that you don't have to capitalize on every move. There's going to be another bus coming. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I'm not I'm not a fan of short term trading at all. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'd prefer, well, number one, I'm too busy for that, right? right? right. I got, I'm running my firm, I'm dealing with this. And on top of that, just from my own personal capital, if you're trading, number one, why are you trading? How much, how much of a return would you like to get that's going to put a smile on your face? Is it 100%, 50%, 20%, 200%? Okay, well, what if I told you that if you were disciplined and patient with your money and you locked up your funds for two, three, four, five years, can you match that return? without having to trade in and trade out, the odds are if you make a, and mind you, you obviously have to make the right few calls, but the patience to wait X amount of time for your investment to pan out mm-hmm. is infinitely harder than actually making the right call. Mm-hmm. Because there's so many people that I know as a previous stockbroker, existing clients, speaking to individuals, me personally during my investing journey, where I've realized, oh man, I was right here. I was right here. I was right here. But it didn't pan out in six months. It panned out in three years. Right. It didn't pan out in two weeks. It panned out on four years. And if you think about it, if you could, and again, I'm not saying that this always happens. I'm not preaching to anybody to go risk your capital. Obviously, there's, I'm just oversimplifying this for the conversation. Mm-hmm. But if you anticipate a company going from A to B or you know to X to possibly a hundred uh, to make 100%, and you got to wait five years, your annualized return is going to be roughly just shy of 20%. Mm-hmm. You're still beating the market. Right. And and a lot of people just don't have that type of patience and that discipline. Yeah. And I, I, it's because the emotions get so wrapped up into it. You see any little, there's so many people that you see, they get, you know, once the stock starts to go against them a little bit, then they're panicking and, you know, hitting the sell button, getting out. Yeah. Or the other way around where they refuse to cut, cut their loss and, and move on. <laughs> Yeah. And and you even see it in real estate too. You know, people like flipping houses. Why the hell would you want to flip a house? (laughs) I don't get it. All right. You you put the time in, you get the effort, you hire, you buy a house for X, right? You remodel it, then you, 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 you sell it for a profit, right? Right. Well, that's the idea. But you're also sacrificing future cash flows. Mm -hmm. So if you actually had patience and discipline and said, you know what, instead of flipping this house, I'm not going to spend as much money to, you know, put a, a granite cabinet in, maybe a excuse me, granite countertop in. Maybe I'll use quartz, or instead of using the top line cabinets, I'll use the middle line cabinets. I'll 
cut corners in a smart way so it doesn't become a huge expense to really beef up this uh this this home but instead of selling it for a profit i'm actually going to rent it out mm -hmm. because after x amount of time all of a sudden if i buy one home and one home turns to three to five to ten or whatever the number is and that's just talking about homes you know we could you know there's obviously multi-home properties so on and so forth but now you're sacrificing money over the next six to 12 months over infinite cash flows mm -hmm. as long as you own the property and that's what i look at you know Obviously, again, you have to know where you are in life. Maybe you just want to sell something for a quick profit and cash out, whatever the case may be. But again, uh, I think the worst thing an investor could do is be short-minded and only see maybe six months out. Right. Or excuse me, not see more than six or 12 months out and not look at the, uh, the bigger picture. Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen. And I'm pleased to announce that she's back. Fresh off a of rebrand and ready to help is Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, spullen at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Well, speaking of the bigger picture then, uh, what's your take on, on the environment that we're in now? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, as, as an individual that has invested in the private market, you know, a lot of these VC-backed companies, my, my concern since 2019 has been these overblown valuations mm -hmm. where you have companies that are deeply in the red and they're being valued at just insane, <laughs> insane amounts where I'm getting offers and I'm looking down and I'm saying to myself, what the hell? And, you know, obviously there's a little bit of an agenda. Some of these companies, you know, definitely warrant that valuation. But then again, you have certain early stage VCs that invested several years ago and they just want to cash out and there's no science to valuation. It's all art. Mm -hmm. It's all what's negotiated. Right. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see, even though we've obviously been affected uh, 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 to a certain extent, rather, mm -hmm. uh, I'm glad to see uh, these valuations starting to come crashing down to earth. 
especially because a lot of these companies have been overvalued, not just even in the private market, but uh, even the public market itself due to that post COVID uh, run up. Right. Now we're in a situation that we've had rising interest rates. I know CPI hit 5%, what, two weeks ago, uh, but inflation's an issue. At least uh, some of these valuations have come down considerably uh, to a level playing field, but we still have inflation. There's talks of a recession. Technically, we hit a recession for for two quarters. Uh, excuse me. The, we hit a recession, rather, uh, last year. Right, right. Um, but nobody really talks about that. Oh, we did. <laughs> yeah, we already did. And I think my, my biggest concern, and I've been banging my, my, my hand against the table for this for quite some time, is just spending money out of the wazoo without really any achieving any results. And we're even seeing, you know, there's, there's no, we're getting to a point where there's really no accountability and we're not even seeing it with our government, but we're also seeing it with some private companies. Look what Elon Musk did with Twitter, whether you like him or you hate him, mm -hmm. he slashes that workforce by 70%. Twitter's working fine. Right. So why were, why were all these people employed there? Then you have all these tech companies slashing their workforces anywhere between 10 to 30% with many of them still operating fine. Mm -hmm. So are we just hiring people for the sake of hiring people well, for them to have, you know, lattes on the, the, the company check. <laughs> and I'm not trying to be like rude and down talk anybody, but the bottom line is like, I built myself up coming from nothing while sacrificing a lot. While my buddies were going to concerts, I was working the crazy hours and I lost friends and this, that, and the other thing. So the way I look at it is listen, and I understand now there has to be a gentle balance, but you got to take accountability for your actions and whatever work you do, you got to do it with some sort of passion, because if you don't have passion, what are you just miserable? Like, you know, get up every day, go to your job, put the work in, have passion about what you do. Hopefully it helps if you work at a great company or a great organization, and you have colleagues that are actually fun to work with, and it's not a miserable environment. Mm -hmm. That's the culture that I instill within my organization. But I feel that too many people are just, uh, you know, getting up, going through the motion. They're not taking, being accountable for their life choices, not being accountable for the work they put in, aren't living life with a certain amount of passion. And that's stuff that's, uh, you know, really sacred to me just because of my, you know, journey from where I was when I was a kid to where I am now. And a lot in that sentence there. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, I always go on rants. No, about, that's all right. So <laughs> it's just, uh, I just so it's like blast a, it out there. Sounds like a perfect, uh, perfect personality for a radio. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, no, you mentioned the the over the the company is becoming a bit, uh, I guess, bloated on the the labor force. Uh, how much of that do you think though was them? Because there was a lot of business that a lot of these companies ended up getting because of the lockdowns during COVID. Like, were they just hiring without care about tomorrow? Yeah. Like knowing that this day was going to come, that they're going to be laying all these people off, or do you think that they just didn't understand that these growth projections weren't going to last? I mean, it could be a combination. I mean, I, you know, I've got to believe that some of these CEOs, and even if uh, some of these CEOs aren't the most business savvy, mm -hmm. and they're just there because of their vision, which is obviously the most important thing, those CEOs have a team that is business savvy, whether it's a chief mark operating officer or a president of some sort or a CFO. So I, I can't really chalk it up that they didn't foresee it. I think what happened was you had such a wave of talent coming in and a rush for a lot of these tech companies to snatch up this talent because, you know, all these tech companies, even though they operate in different industries and verticals, they're still uh, 
going after and targeting the same pool, which is predominantly engineers right. or anything computer related, coders, whatever the case may be, right? Yeah. So they're just snapping up everybody because they don't want, they're fearful that the next company might grab the top, top talent. But in the grand scheme of things, now you fast forward 12 to 18 months, now you got to turn around and those people that you hired, you have to say, maybe not exactly those people, but there has to be 10 to 20 to 30% of your workforce that you've hired over the last two to three years and say, hey, listen, we, we got to focus on profit. We got to cut you. And to me that, and again, it's not like I'm running a $100 billion tech company, right? but whether you're running a, you know, a company with 10 employees or 10,000, there takes a certain amount of leadership. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's great leadership. I think you have to be able to pan out all the scenarios and understand that when you hire somebody, there's a life behind that and you can't treat anybody like a number. That's, that's just <sighs> my you. point of view. No, thank you. And every single person that you do hire, it's, it's a push and give relationship. If I'm the leader of an organization and I hire you for my organization, I don't want to treat you like a number. I want to treat you like a person, but at the same point in time, you also have to have, provide value to this organization right. by holding yourself accountable and being a value add to this organization. What do you get in return? What I hope for is a great culture, a great work environment, uh, a certain amount of equity, which I do have. I am launching entities that are going to hold equity for all my uh, employees and my contractors within my organization. Mm -hmm. and, and that's really that, that contract, that, that contract between employer an employee. And, and again, I feel that everybody's been just treating these people like a number and just willy nilly, well, let's hire this, 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 and this. And if you take a step back, it's, well, listen, I, I get that things happen and you might not have foreseen certain things within the economy, right? but it ain't that difficult. <laughs> it really isn't. Well, and if you have the team behind you, which I got to believe you do, you should have foresaw at least 70% of this happening. I can't tell you how many steel mills I worked for, steel companies that I worked for, when we were talking about bringing in new people and you know, we voice our concerns to the management group, like, hey, I don't think this guy's going to work out. He's got this issue, this issue, this issue. He doesn't really fit with the culture we're trying to build here. Mm -hmm. And then they come back and say like, well, why don't we try him out? Why don't we uh, you know, just hire him and give him three months and see how it works? Like, no, that's that, like you said, that's a life. Like you're caught, you, this guy is going to be leaving a job for something that it may not be as concrete uh, for his future as you're selling him that it's going to be. And yeah, you're just going to just going to uproot this guy's life just on a whim because you think like, well, why not? We'll just give it a shot. Right. And, and that's the thing, too. You start understand. I'm very, very intrigued by human nature mm -hmm. and especially in our role, you know, uh, finance and investing, which is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> it really isn't. No. But. I'm, I'm very intrigued by human nature and over the last, you know, I've been running my own firm for five years now between you know, the Spaventa group and my previous firm. And I've been in a leadership role for about seven or eight. Mm -hmm. So you start to start seeing certain things and certain patterns of how you believe somebody will cut it and whether they're not. And it also doesn't have to, it's not isolated to the, the hard skills that are required for the job right. just in, in itself. Right. It, there's also those soft skills. There's also their mentality, their mindset, uh, their attitude towards life in general, mm -hmm. right? And typically, I feel that once you hire somebody, you'll know within a week, maybe two weeks maximum, 
if that person is a right fit for your organization. And that's the the more difficult part to do is to assess, not just over a series of interviews or what I like to call conversations. Cause every time I interview somebody, I don't really interview somebody. I just have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, even my, my, my chief marketing officer, Dana brings it up and she says, you know, this really, I've never had an interview like this. Cause all this was a conversation because if you have the hard skills, it just comes down to whether we get along, right. how you're going to fit in, learning a little bit about you as a human being, because you know what, if we could get along and have a good time, and I could see that you're the type of person that you'll work and put the work in when it's needed, and you'll be, you'll be resourceful enough to find answers, you know what, you might just be a good fit for not only our organization, but our management team. And at the end of the day, 90% of the success of a business stems from its management team and the people behind it. Because mm-hmm. what is a business? It's only a group of people, a group of people either providing a service or a product. Do you look at a business's culture when you're trying to assess whether or not you want to take a stake in it? I do. I do. We do pay attention to a few uh, anonymous employee uh, forums, uh, for lack yes, of a better word. I know what you're trying to say. We like to, yes. Okay. So read between the lines. Yep. So it's one of the things that I realized several years ago. And I said, you know, there's only so much when you're looking to make an investment. And, you know, years and years ago, when I worked for a a small cap investment fund, I interviewed so many CEOs of small cap companies. Mm -hmm. And obviously, everybody's going to have a bias towards their company. And you could speak about management. You want to look about where they've been, what they're doing. Do they put the work in? But the culture itself, the best way, uh, a good green light of how the company is doing is to actually listen to and speak with the actual employees, whether they're top level or even the, the bottom level employees. And really get a feel. at the bottom level. I think is where you really you really see it. Are they happy? Right. Are they smiling? Are yep. they greeting you? Will they stop and have a conversation with you? Are they pissed off looking or closed off? Or- yep. And and that doesn't really mean that the company is going to increase, you know, five x or ten x or no. be a, a long going uh, company. It could just be a passion thing where the employees are maybe a little bit on the pretentious side, hoping the company works out. So you really have to cut through the vein and read through the lines. And that's just one aspect of what we look at. Mm-hmm. But it's a great place to start. I could tell you that much. Yeah, it sounds like uh, it may not be something that leads to success, but it's definitely not something that's going to stop success. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And I could even tell you of a time when uh, I was interviewing a CEO of a small cap biotech, and this is going back maybe close to 10 years ago. And I spoke to him multiple times Mm -hmm. over the course of 30 days. And every single time I spoke with him, he was either on the golf course or fishing. Interesting. And I get it. You know, some CEOs, that's what they do. But I asked him flat out, I said, listen, are you ever, you know, uh, conducting research when working with your your top guys or your scientists? Like whenever I speak to you, you're always having some sort of fun. (laughs) Right. And, And that's fine. But what kind of lo and behold the the company i think went bankrupt a few years ago <laughs> but you know it's it's certain things like that where you see initiative and i'd rather 100% of the time i'll put it to you this way Kyle 100% of the time i'll always bet on the people behind a company mm-hmm. even if i'm not entirely sold on the product or service over a product and service that i absolutely love but the people behind the company are subpar that makes perfect sense uh, it sounds like you've talked to quite a few CEOs in the past. Like, what are some of the common traits that you see uh, between the successful ones, or maybe even some of the common traits on the failures, or I guess not successful, I should say? Yeah, the uh, you know there was 
one in particular i know the company and i know his name i'm not going to state either you don't have to do that but they're 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 uh the the market cap on the the company actually appreciated about six x from the time I spoke with him, mm-hmm. and unlike the biotech CEO, every time I spoke to this gentleman, every single time you would hear things in the background or you would hear people and you could tell it's not it's not a frat house right it's not a party right. they're not playing flip cup or anything <laughs> but it was actually the people employed with the organization he was always either in the office or he was actually in uh, a, the factory. So yes, this this company actually had a factory. So mm-hmm. they manufactured things. That's the only clue I'll give. And he would actually walk down and you know shake hands and meet with everybody and was involved in every single aspect of the organization. And I said, you know what, that's that's leadership that I like that I haven't, unless that's you know how most CEOs are, I could tell you right now, even though I spoke to a lot of small caps to mid caps, a lot of them aren't. You know, they they think that's below them to a certain extent. That's why right. uh, Elon Musk to bring him in, love him or hate him. At least the guy, you know, is heavily involved from the top down with a lot of the things that he does. So this particular individual, I said, I think this is a guy that I could put my money behind. And lo and behold, it wound up working out. So there's there's certain qualities that I don't really think it matters what they say. Um, I'm always a big fan of it's not what you say, it's how you say it and the tone that you have. Mm-hmm. And people aren't stupid to a point where they don't understand somebody being genuine, somebody having passion for what they do. And I think that if you speak to somebody that's genuine, they have passion about what they do, and obviously they have you know some intellect to go behind that, uh, again, I think that's somebody that's really, really, really hard to bet against. How many of the CEOs have you asked questions to, and when they didn't know the answer, they would actually be honest about it and say, you know what, I don't know the answer to that, but let me find out. Uh, actually, that's one thing that most of them, uh, I don't think I don't think anybody ever lied to me unless they were really, really good at it. <laughs> Nobody tried to blow smoke up your butt? No, no. That's, uh, I just asked because that was, uh, we'd, we'd spoken to another uh, VC, and I think he told us that that was one of the red flags that he'd watched out for. So it sounded like it, it was more common than maybe uh, I thought it would be. It seems like it'd be yeah, hard to get to uh, that role. If that's your mentality. Yeah, I, I would have to agree 100%. And you're not supposed to know the answers. Always be re- weary of somebody that knows all the answers all the time. Mm-hmm. That's part of, that's part of, you know, I, I tell my organization, most of the individuals uh, employed with uh, Spaventa Group are over the age of 40. You know, they're 40s and they're 50s, seasoned individuals. And we have a few young juniors that are just starting out their careers. And I even always preach to everybody, you know, when we're guiding juniors as well, because I like to be involved in the guidance of everybody. Mm -hmm. And I say, don't ever put anybody on a pedestal, no matter who they are. The president, I don't care who it is, don't have respect for somebody, right? Yes. Don't put anybody on a pedestal thinking that they did something that you can't do or they did something special. Why? Because people only talk about the major accomplishments. Obviously, media doesn't help by putting everybody in a really, really positive mm-hmm. godlike stance. But I, I tell the junior associates, I said, you see these senior individuals that have been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years. You could learn so much from them. But you know what? There's, there's nothing that these gentlemen and ladies can't also learn from you. Mm-hmm. Even though you might be 20 years old and this person's 55, the day that you think that you're done and you there's nothing left to learn uh, is not a good day for you. No, There's always something left to learn because even, if, even a 20-year-old, 15-year-old, even a 10-year-old, 5-year-old, pick your age, that's a different, uh, uh, different life experiences. 
a different set of uh, perspectives mm -hmm. and they might just open your eyes to something that you never really noticed before. I got to say, if I ever wake up one day and think, that's it, I've learned everything, I, I don't know that I'd even get out of bed. That sounds depressing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if anybody ever thinks they learned everything, pick up a book on quantum physics. Try to oh, get back to me on I've, that. Yeah. I've fallen down that rabbit hole before. <laughs> so, yeah. So have I. So have I. Oh, man. Yeah. Actually, uh, I uh, my background is I was in the Navy for six years. I was a nuclear uh, engineer. I guess you could be the, the school that I went through. Uh, oh, wow. For the electrician side. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's really exciting. It sounds cool, but no, no, it's it's completely opposite of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my biggest regrets is never going into the military. I was always under the assumption, you know what, I, I got to make it on my own and I, I can't, you know, go off this beaten path of figuring things out and actually one day hopefully being wealthy. But but even as a grown adult, uh, you know, it's one of my biggest regrets. I always wanted to go into the Air Force. It's funny. Uh, my dad was Air Force. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that because I'm trying to think back, like the, my motivation for joining was like one day I took a look at my life and where I was at. I think I was 19 at the time. And I thought, you know, where am I going to see myself in five years? Uh, I think I was applying for a manager's position uh, for like the uh, the deli side, I think it was. And I was like kind of doing some like, you know, thought work, you know, mm -hmm. preparing for like the types of interview questions they'd ask. And when I saw Walmart in my future five years later, that's when I went and enlisted. I was like, you know, oh. what? I need to get another <laughs> skill and I need to find something because I'm yeah. not going to college. It's not for me. Like, what else can I do? Right. Right. Yeah. But that's 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 awesome. You know, it's uh, but, again, it's uh, I think that and I've never been into the military myself, but I, I would gather that you could learn a lot about how to be disciplined, how to treat yourself, how to treat people around you. Not only that, uh, but if you go in the right field or the right service, you can actually learn some usable skills. The skills that I learned right. uh, during my six years it directly translated and got me jobs in the steel industry immediately afterwards. Like For me, it was, right. it was exactly what you said. It was investing in myself. Yeah, man. Yeah. It's, uh, and you know, it is what it is, but uh, I wanted to be, I wanted to be good old Maverick up there. Oh, <laughs> that's right. Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not Goose, not Goose. I don't know. I don't like how it ended up for Goose, but I totally wanted to be Maverick back in the day. I always thought Goose had the better nickname, though. That's the nickname I always wanted. Yeah, Goose. Yeah, I don't, I don't I know. I figured it was available, Iceman. too. I think Iceman. <laughs> yeah, I think Iceman's the name to go. If you're going to go with a nickname from, from Top Gun, it's got to be Iceman. I could see that. I just never was a big Val Kilmer fan. Oh, you're crazy. Um, I, I'm, I'm big on Val Kilmer. You know, the same. Not the best Batman. He was a good Bruce Wayne, but. He was awesome uh, in uh, The Doors remake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Morrison, Morrison. Yeah, he definitely yes. was. That's a good one too. Yeah, one hundred percent. But as I always say, not not the best Batman. He was played a good Bruce Wayne. Uh, nobody does it better than Michael Keaton. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, Val Kilmer. Yeah, unfortunate what happened to him. But say it was all right. I I did enjoy that one. All right. Um, I think the last question I think I want to ask you uh, something to leave uh, the listeners with. Like going forward, like what industries are you actively looking into? Like what are the ones that you think in the next 10 years have the biggest room for growth? When it comes to, you know, we, we invest across all the stages in VCs and this, the VC secondary market. When it comes to, once companies uh, reach to like the, the mid to late stage, it becomes less about the industry and more about the company and its future growth, obviously in relation to the industry or the vertical it's in. But as it relates to 
earlier stage stuff, that's when we really want to flex our muscles. And that's going to be the the more riskier investments that we make. Mm-hmm. And the industries that I'm, I'm very, very interested in is space, uh, psychedelics. Obviously, there's a ton of regular regulatory hurdles over there, but uh, I'm very, very intrigued at the prospect of psychedelics. Uh, I could tell you the industries that I'm not really anything to do with software. The, the barrier to entry is so low now and everybody has a new software company that it's really, really difficult to decipher which companies are going to be around for the next five to 10 years or which companies themselves are going to be disrupted. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, generative artificial intelligence, obviously, we've it's been on our, our radar for some time. But, but if anything, uh, to answer your question, I, I'm really looking at life sciences because over the last couple of years, I come to the realization that we have things like ChatGPT, which is a remarkable, you know, invention, mm-hmm. innovation rather. And we have technologies like generative artificial intelligence and all these new companies coming to life that are doing remarkable, remarkable things. However, we still have people that, you know, can't see they're blind yeah. or they're deaf yeah. or all of a sudden somebody in their twenties getting MS and they're, you know, not living life they, like they, they're used to, or, you know, somebody that loses a leg or an arm and they have this artificial limb. So I think by not having innovation in the life sciences sector is extremely, extremely um, not responsible. Yeah, not responsible on our part because everybody's focusing on really software for the last 10 years. Why? Because it's easily scalable. You could easily make a lot of money. But these are the same people that are saying, no, you got to put money towards invent- uh, innovation and you got to take risks on innovation. Well, well, there's a caveat to that. And you only take risk as long as you're going to make 100, 200, 300 times your money, which is fine. We're all, you know, this, the whole point of the game is to build wealth and make money. But if you're also going to preach, it's also about innovation and changing society and doing the right thing. How about we start focusing on life sciences and actually make people's health a lot better? Because if you don't have your health, what the hell do you have? Well said. It's actually kind of funny that you mentioned that. Like, If everybody's into it, then how is it innovative anymore? If everybody's doing software, then like, where's the innovation then? Right. Right. Yeah, that's that's a that's an extremely valid point as well. I also love what you're saying about space too. That's the you had more than a few people who uh, look at the industries that are in the same way that you do have come to the same conclusion. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, it's it's really exciting. What should be in the near future? Uh, I, I, how old are you, Kyle? By the way, I just turned forty this year or last year. Okay, you just uh, so we're right around yep. the same age. Yes, I'm going to be thirty-seven. So if you think about where society and technologically we've come mm-hmm. just over the last 10 years, not even the yeah. last 20 or 30 years when you and I were kids and, you know, we were, uh, what phone was still on the wall and people had pages. Yeah. I was and- knowing how it is to use a rotary phone and a comedian. And I'm not bringing, I'm not making this up myself, but I remember a comedian, I forget who they said, you hate, you would hate people with zeros in their name. Yes. <laughs> I forgot who said that, but you would have to dial the zero and wait for it to come all the way back. And I said, yes, no, people don't know that pain of how many use a rotary phone. Right. I do. But think about how far we've come technologically over the last 30 years, 20 years, mm-hmm. 10 years, hell, even the last five years, knowing that you and I, in essence, should live to at least we're 80. What's to come over the next 10 20, 30, 40 years by the year 2050, 2060, 2070. I think it's a really, really exciting time to be alive. Yeah. yeah. As long as the government could stop burning through money. (laughs) Uh, Man, you just put a nice bow on this conversation. I don't know how we can top that. 
Uh, we don't. We just ended. Uh, <laughs> so, sounds, sounds good to me. <laughs> Got anything else that you'd like to leave listeners with before I wrap this up then? No. If anybody's uh, intrigued about learning a little bit more about us, again, our new website's going to be up uh, within the next few days. You could go to tsginvest.com. Uh, we're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, as well as YouTube, at tsginvest. We're starting our YouTube videos and webinars and all that good stuff. So so again, we've been around for some time. We're, we're growing our brand. And uh, yeah, at TSG Invest or TSGinvest.com. All right. We'll make sure all those links in the episode description. But that is going to take us to the end of the episode today. I would like to say thank you to everyone who stuck around to the end. And especially thanks to Drew here for persevering in order to make today's conversation possible. Uh, like you said, if you'd like to learn more, check them out at tsginvest.com. And you can check us out at twobullsinachinashop.com. All those links will be in the episode description. Be back in your ears soon with another exciting episode. But till then, share this with your friends like an embarrassing photo of your kid and take care. <laughs> take it easy, Kyle. Bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Two Bulls in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company. They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks and the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades. Drew Spavetna? Spavet. I should have asked you how to say that. Is that Spavet? Spaventa. Spaventa? Yeah, Spaventa. Spaventa. Try feeling like my workforce who has to say it day in and day out, right? <laughs> That's why we have the abbreviation TSG, but. Right, right. <laughs>